rainforests of the world are disappearing at an alarming rate. Every second, an area the size of a football field is destroyed. It's cut down to make furniture, for grazing land to make hamburgers, and to make space for people to live. At this rate of destruction, there will be no primal forest left by the end of this century. It will be a great ecological disaster, threatening the Earth's balance of nature. And the human world will have lost millions of species, of plants and of medicines. The two great tragedies for the rainforest destruction, well, is the destruction of life on the planet. I mean, that's the great tragedy we're creating. This is the era of mega-extinction. It's the largest sustained extinction of species since the end of the, of the middle life period, what's called the Mesozoic period, which ended the, the life of the dinosaur. And we're not aware of that, and we're not aware of the tragedy, because nobody's setting out to destroy uh, species. Nobody's saying, well, look, we have a real plan, and we're going to move all our armed forces to destroy species. It's happening as a byproduct of our industrial consumer throwaway society. Tropical rainforests cover just 7% of the Earth's surface, but they're the richest source of life there is, and they act as an air conditioner to the globe. When Alfred Russell Wallace explored the forests of the Amazon basin in 1905, the world then barely knew they existed. The sombre shade, scarce illuminated by a single direct ray, even of the tropical sun. The enormous size and height of the trees, most of which rise like huge columns, a hundred feet or more, without throwing out a single branch. The curious and even extraordinary creepers and climbers which wind round them, hanging in long festoons from branch to branch, sometimes curling and twisting on the ground like great serpents, then mounting to the very tops of the trees, thence throwing down roots and fibres which hang waving in the air, or twisting round each other, form ropes and cables of every variety and size. Columban missionary Father Sean McDonough lived close to the primal rainforests of the Philippines for nearly 30 years. In the Philippines you have at least five or six different kinds of tropical forests. You have the sort of the mangrove forests and the, you had the, the lowland forests. They're all gone. The one I knew pretty well was a, the forest from about 1,500 to, uh, feet above sea level to about uh, 3,500 feet. Uh, very much these huge dipterocarp trees, a lot of vines, a lot of clinging plants to the trees. Not too much vegetation on the ground, on the floor, because what basically happens is that um, the, uh, the, most of the nutrients in the soil of forests is actually in the living matter. So you don't have the sort of seasonal shedding of, of tree, of leaves, and the build-up of organic matter on the ground. It's a very quick process of recycling, and a very efficient one. It's one of the most efficient recycling processes in the world. I suppose the most crucial thing from a uh, 
growth perspective is the tropical forest is the optimum place for growth on the planet. You have light, sun and warmth and, and rain. And so growth is almost a constant daily um, reality. You've no, you've no winter and that's very obvious there. You also have a lot of creatures. The thing that I was well aware of was uh, the bird life in the forest was very, very um, diverse, extraordinary diversity of, of birds. And again, that's one of the major losses with the destruction of the forest. Many of these countries, the bird life has just been decimated. And many of these birds have a very, very beautiful plumage and very, very peculiar and very, very special and very beautiful to look at. Their, their calls are not as... Um, melodious uh, as some of the calls of the uh, of the birds of the of of the temperate zone that I would know here like a lark for example but um they're certainly very striking there um some of the creatures of the forest but again you would have to be out quite a bit like any area creatures don't come out to talk to you unless you actually learn to abide your time and wait and uh, which I often did as I was going through the forest um that area that was uh, particularly uh, monkeys, all kinds of various different groups of, of or kinds of monkeys. Wild pig was quite a, was quite prevalent in that area, and they could be sometimes quite dangerous. You'd have to take a little bit of care. Of course, reptiles are very prevalent in forests, but again, you wouldn't necessarily see them as you go through a forest. <laughs> The rainforests were explored and exploited. In the beginning for wood like mahogany, then products like rubber, food like cocoa, and then medicines to cure illnesses. It was only much later that their role in the world's ecological balance was realized. Sean McDonough didn't see that importance when he first went to the Philippines in the 1960s. He began life as a missionary in the isolated southern island of Mindanao, then almost completely covered with primal tropical rainforest. I went to Mindanao as a young person. I was, well, 24 years of age. I was ordained in 1969. I would have gone with the vision of modernity. The Ireland of the 1960s, the rising tide raises all boats, Sean Lamas and all of that. So I would have been very committed to progress and to development. I was part of a group who... Uh, whose uh, counterparts in university went on to engineering, etc., all that kind of world. So my early years in Mindanao, I was very committed to the industrialised process and even uh, industrialised agriculture. I thought that was the way forward. However, after studying anthropology and returning to the Philippines, I just began to see the extraordinary destruction that was taking place with rampant deforestation. I mean, you first of all saw these huge trucks coming down, laden with extraordinarily beautiful timber. Now, uh, you'd have to wonder, is this sustainable, and realise it wasn't. So that was the first kind. Of, you, my reaction to that was a kind of an emotional reaction. Isn't this terrible? My concerns very often at that time would be, were they loggers being well paid, or were, what, what kind of rights had they? I wasn't aware of the level of destruction that was taking place. I wasn't aware of the fact that by destroying the rainforest, you're destroying the most vibrant area of life on planet Earth. There are more species there than any other part of the world. The next thing you often saw there is, is very obvious in, say, in, in a rainforest environment. If you're destroying the forest after a single shower or afternoon's rain in the monsoon period, you just saw the topsoil 
of the mountains coming down into through the rivers right into the sea. And you'd see for maybe two or three miles out into a bay in a lagoon just chocolate brown water. And you wouldn't really need to be a scientist to realise this is unsustainable and it is terribly destructive. When I went there, about 60% of it was still tropical, covered in tropical rainforest. Now it's down to about 25%. So a huge destruction has taken place. I was living in the province of South Cotabato, up in the, um, in the mountains, about uh, 2,300 feet. Uh, and when I went there, the roads in were very poor, and very often you had to walk in. We had no bridge. Uh, you'd have If the rivers were in flood, you couldn't move. So even at that stage... Um, the, the logging process was slow enough, but once the roads went in and once the heavy equipment came in, then the trees just started to come down. And you could see, too, the pain of tribal peoples because for us, you see, the natural world out there, we have made a thing of it. It's a resource. Whereas for tribal people, there's a, there's a kinship relationship. Even when they cut trees, they ask permission from the, the spirit of the, uh, the tree we tend to look on that as superstitious. These are tribal peoples who had very little contact with either the Spanish colonial world or the United States colonial world because they lived in an inaccessible area in the rainforest until the 1950s when roads began to be built into the area. And yet by the time I began to work with them in the late 1970s, the whole fabric of their culture had been destroyed or was in the process of being destroyed. And when my research, as I learned the language and culture, led me to really understand how intimately involved their lives were with the forest. Uh, now, it wasn't just like it is for the logger, that's bored feet of lumber, and the, you know the, the various species are commercial timber, and you sell that off and you have your merchants in, in the port towns, and then you have your needs where... US or Japan or wherever. No, this was a community of life and their life was totally dependent on it. Their food, their medicine, their housing, uh, their whole spiritual world, their um, weaving, their dance, their music. And as the forest was destroyed, you could see the fabric of their own culture coming apart. And I remember recalling one evening the um, 17th century Gaelic uh, uh, song from Munster, Cadiennamid Fastag and Aymed, that, again, in that particular song, that the destruction of the culture and the destruction of the, uh, of the native woodlands, in a sense, went together. Now, that's more intimately true in the, in the um, rainforests of uh, Southeast Asia that I came to know. Since the 60s, there's been widespread destruction of the primal forest in the Philippines. Most of it's been used for commercial logging. Now there's only a fraction left, and the removal of the forests has had disastrous effects. The natural life support systems of the islands have been badly damaged. Lakes and rivers have been polluted. And soil erosion has destroyed the land, as well as the coral reefs and the mangrove swamps. Father Sean McDonough returned to Ireland a few years ago and former Columban priest Neil Fraser continues the ecological mission in Mindanao, helping to protect and restore what's left of a tropical forest in the north of the island. The forest was cut away by logging. It's, uh, that's the start. And then the, the settlers um, 
in actual fact in that area it's mostly Saban and tribal people they they move in after the loggers and they they burn off and start farming planting corn but they are under pressure from what we call lowland settlers these are people coming from the other islands in the Philippines uh, they have, have abused their land misused their land cut down the trees there An excellent example is Cebu Island which is is a dead island um, the water in Cebu is desperate. Uh, the sea is encroaching on the freshwater table, so if you try to drink the water in Cebu City itself, you'll find it's very salty. Even taking a bath in it is hard. There's less freshwater coming down, so the sea moves in. And this will happen at any point in the Philippines. So we want to protect it here while we still have forest. But um, from all the reading... Uh, we've come to realize also that this, this tremendous biodiversity that is in this, this whole area is called Mount Malindang National Park, and we think it is the only, um, the only virgin forest still left in all of western Mindanao. There are other patches, but it's, it seems impossible that they will survive given the roads that crisscross them. But this one has a chance of surviving. So we've come to realize the the tremendous uh, biodiversity that is there and the tremendous heritage and the trem that we just have to protect this. So there's a, the program is a two-pronged thing. One is to protect that area until we, till we realize its real role in our lives. And the secondly, it's to, to try and let it creep back, creep down those slopes till it will come back to its original state. Tell me what you mean by biodiversity. Biodiversity, the, the, the enormous number of species, animals and plants, flowers, insects, the whole lot, the enormous number of species um, that are, are there in the forest. Uh, it's quite, quite incredible. I remember in one, one time we were trying to search for a place to, to bring people on exposure and we went into an area that I think very, very few people have ever trod on it. Even the, the, the rocks and the river were covered with moss the whole thing and on one branch it was still alive the branch was still living it was hanging across the, the creek we had to duck under it but there were three types of orchids and five types of fern on that one branch and I hadn't seen any of them before it was really amazing once the habitat uh, disappears the, 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 the type of uh, bird life and animal life and insect life disappear with it uh, people in the area will tell you of, of uh, different things that they used to know, different birds. I was thrilled to see just last year to Carlisle, the hornbill bird. Two of them glided past us, and they were, it was wonderful to see. We're trying to set up what we call a buffer, uh, a buffer zone. Um, people, it's a place where people will live with and under trees. We call it canopy restoration and canopy farming. Now, um, at present, we're, not, we're up against the forest, and we do hope that given all the fruit that we're planting and the distance that they are from settlements, that probably monkeys and birds will, will be the first beneficiary of these fruit, and they will bring in their manure, their droppings, they will bring the seeds of the forest back that this forest, the original forest, will gradually 
creep down the mountain again. But however far it goes, there will always be the, the surrounding of the forest will be a buffer zone where people start to, where people will go a little bit into the forest so they're living under trees, and that's what we're trying to establish now. In one particular place up in the northern part of the province, we were invited by a person who had graduated from our seminars, and he, he had dived for many years, and he said it's a very, very nice area. We went up there and had a look, and then we started take, using that area for exposures for, for our seminar. But he also led us to, to one particular sanctuary that his father-in-law had protected. When Union Carbide came in, his father-in-law said, ''Ah, no, 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 don't take this area.'' And there are about seven hectares of fairly original mangrove species left. In fact, we have, we have 16 species of trees, some of which, well, uh, most fishermen, even in that area, don't know of these species. And, and, and marine biologists from other areas have not seen these species. Mm. So we're trying to preserve them, to use their seeds... To, uh, to make seedlings from it and proper, so that they can be propagated in other areas so that maybe original mangroves can return. That is one aspect of the, the sanctuary. But we would also like to respect the cycle of uh, dry land right through to the deep sea. Because some of the big fishes don't come up into the mangrove, but they eat the small fish who, who do feed off the mangrove. And in this particular area, the sea flats leading to the deep are about, it's about a kilometer out, so it makes for a very big sanctuary. These sea flats have a lot of seaweeds, which are prolific feeding ground for many, many classes of fish. So we're trying to preserve also these sea flats. And in the midst of the flats, there are some um, coral sections that we are likewise trying to preserve but the coral is not brilliant at this stage because of dynamite fishing one particular example that area uh, was in the living history of the people there there used to be the dugong the sea cow they even have a barrio where they used to barbecue where they used to slice them up and, and dry them out now not one can be found in that area and they they're a fairly, fairly dying species worldwide, the, the dugong. While the Columbans in Mindanao continue their work to preserve what's left, worldwide the movement to save the rainforests has focused on the commercial use of tropical hardwoods, the valuable timber from the rainforests. Ireland imports 50,000 tonnes of tropical hardwoods every year. Brooks Thomas is one of the biggest importers of tropical hardwoods into Ireland. Chief Executive Morris Brooks showed me around their depot in Dublin's North Wall. This is some uh, Brazilian mahogany which has come all the way from uh, Brazil. Um, we, it's not such an important species in Ireland. The most important hardwood species in Ireland is uh, Odum or Iroko, as it's more 
commonly the more correct species name in this country. And uh, it's also, of course, known generally as teak, although it's not teak, it's, it's is Iroko. It's a sort of West African teak would be a good description for it. What are we here now? Well, this is red oak boards. They're actually coffin boards, believe it or not. So timber literally is with people from their cradle to their grave. <laughs> so you provide the wood for the coffins here as well? Yes, yeah? we, we do indeed, yes. Um, very often that, that can be American oak like that, or it can be a lighter coloured species from West Africa called Wawa. And that's also that's American, used. is it? That's American oak there, yes. And this here, what's that dark oak there? Well, that, that is, that's uh, more Iroko. It's actually uh, it's, it's, uh, dark because it's just come in from the Keys where it's been raining, unfortunately. Luckily, it's an air-dried product. It's not some of the kiln-dried stuff that we bring in because that we do import kiln-dried hardwoods as well as getting a kiln here in Ireland. You see there, there's uh, bundles of timber there with green ore on it. That's actually usually mahogany, which is uh, one of the major redwood species that we sell here. Again, that comes from Ghana. And what would that be used for? Where, where would we see that now? Well, usually you will see a lot of usually used in on front doors because for a good quality front door, a six-panel door, that sort of thing, uh, it will look very nice in, in a redwood like that. Or in shop fronts. I mean, if you take a walk up Grafton Street nowadays or some of the side streets off the, in, in the centre of Dublin in the popular shopping areas where the corporation has had a very good policy of trying to bring back the old style of shop front, a lot of those shop fronts would be in, in a mahogany or in an Iroko species. On our right here we have piranha pine, which is uh, nearly an extinct species in the uh, Paraná area in uh, southern Brazil. It is a softwoods. Uh, it's mainly used for decorative panelling nowadays, and as you see, we have imported it as a processed product. Uh, it's no longer... Uh, economic or desirable from the, the Brazilian government's point of view to export the planks or the, the makings of that material, which we used to produce in volume here. They look like saddle boards there, are they? There are some door saddles there too, and uh, we manufacture our own door saddles as well as importing some. You're saying that's nearly extinct or something? Is that what? The, the piranha pine is nearly cut out in Brazil. I'm afraid that in Brazil they haven't... Uh, been entirely responsible in terms of their forest management at all and uh, th this is something which causes us concern uh, and we, we'll just we, we are the, at the present the Timber Trade Federation are working very hard uh, we're members of the UK Timber Trade Federation uh, and the Forest Forever campaign and the International Tropical Timber Organization they're all working to try and persuade governments to adopt a more responsible policy uh, towards forestry and at the Rio conference, it was decided to uh, have a, a target 2000 that all timber cut in by the year 2000 would be coming from sustained yield managed forests. Is that feasible? I think the year 2000 is feasible. The, the Worldwide Fund for Nature want the timber trade in the UK to uh, adopt 1995 as, as the target date. I think that's very difficult in terms of all species. However, I can say that as far as our company is concerned, Brooks Thomas have the policy that we will purchase from sustained yield managed forests. So we do go out, we do question our suppliers, we do ask them what, you know, what their policies are. And I mean, my colleagues have been out to West Africa on a number of occasions. We, they go out several times a year 
uh, and they know the situation on the ground, they know the people there and they know the government authorities and uh, they are adopting an extremely responsible uh, position in West Africa and they have been doing so for 20 years in Ghana. Uh, they, in that country, uh, they have uh, this sustained yield manage, uh, management policy. They are monitored by the uh, International Monetary Fund and they actually can give a certificate of sustained yield. We have these certificates from the Ghana government. So uh, they, in fact, uh, have reduced the number of the size of the concessions given to the sawmills by about two-thirds. Uh, and a sawmiller isn't allowed to go into a concession for 40 years after he's been in it before. So they have a very distinct and clear management policy, quite unlike the situation in the Philippines, which is where you've been, uh, where uh, the Marcos regime saw that the countryside was really raped uh, and uh, the, the, there is nothing now sustained on the slopes of the hills in, in that part of the world. It's a very sad situation. And certainly they, they've realised too late that they had to take action and they have now placed a ban on all log and sawn timber exports and the only thing that can be exported from the Philippines now is uh, machined timber or timber that's been further worked or assembled in some way, like doors or windows or something like that. But groups like Earthwatch don't believe sustainable forests work. David O'Gorman of Earthwatch Ireland wants an immediate halt to Ireland's importation of hardwoods. Well, we favour a ban on the importation of topical hardwoods. But we, we feel this is a, a realistic option. It's, we feel it's also in line with um, calls from southern environmental organisations from tropical forest countries for a ban on tropical import, imports. Failing that, our position is that the Irish government should phase in a, the banning of importation of tropical hardwoods over a, say, three, four-year period, and that it should do, do all it can within the European community to, 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 to either ban the importation of tropical hardwoods, if not totally, at least from certain countries, where logging proceeds in some cases 24 hours a day. Is this realistic, Morris Brooks? I don't think it would do anything to uh, to stop uh, actions in the in the rainforest countries. I think it would have a disastrous effect there because people would see that uh, a, a product which was creating wealth for their country has been removed from the scene, and therefore their forests to them become worthless. I don't see that that's going to do anything. It also hands over markets which are currently being supplied by tropical hardwoods to those alternative materials which, as I've said, are non-renewable. Those alternative materials cost a lot of energy to produce. Those alternative materials create more of a greenhouse effect. I think one can't take a simplistic approach like that to the problem. Could countries like Ireland replace imported hardwoods with Irish ones? Tom Roach is a furniture maker and founder of the organisation Irish Woodworkers for Africa and he believes we should return to the use of native Irish timbers like pine and deal. Traditionally these have been the woods that we've used in this country um, where today we're using Iroko and Mahogany's and uh, these woods have served us well, you know, because uh, we have to bear in mind that years ago people... When they used these woods, I served my apprenticeship and it was very important that we treated this wood well before we, we installed them into their f final 
position and that they were painted well and so forth. But we seem to have forgotten how to treat, protect wood. With result, now we're looking for wood that has all these inherent qualities ready available so that we don't have to do anything with it. And um, there's just not enough of that out there. So we, we will have to get back to being uh, responsible for treating this wood ourselves, you know, because we have ways and means of doing it. And it'll serve as well if we look after it. But what do suppliers of Irish wood think? Tom Roach brought me to the sawmills of Meath timber merchant Frank Fox, who doesn't believe that Irish hardwoods, like beech and oak, are good enough or plentiful enough for mainstream furniture production here. Supposing in the morning you said, OK, we can't have any more Oroco in here, uh, what are people going to make windows from? Or doors? There is no substitute. You have to use it. You have to go there. You, the, the alternatives are to go into Europe and maybe buy something like uh, larch or red pine or something like that. I mean, if you stopped all the Oroco in the morning and said, OK, we're going to use a nice, green, friendly wood grown in Ireland and we need so many cubic, thousand cubic metres of it, 60,000 tonnes of it or whatever is used every year, where are you going to get it? You can't. There's no possibility. There is no hope of getting it. You just cannot physically get it. So you're forced back to buy tropical woods that are freely available, are produced in a way that everybody is used to now, so that if you're going to produce anything, like larch or, or red pine, you have to come along and say, say we, we'll produce it square-edged and we will give you six inches and wider and six feet and longer or whatever. So you're going to have always that problem. So, I mean, that uh, use of tropical woods is not just such an ogre as... It's a necessity. It has to be used at the moment. Now, if you were to make a positive decision here tomorrow morning and say, OK, we're going to produce wood that's going to suit joinery and... Uh, we're going to grow it here. You're looking at something that's going to take 50 years at least to produce. At least. I don't know if they can... I'm not sure of what their stocking level is now, what their inventory of woods suitable for that is, but I'm sure you're looking at that. That's where the problem is. Yeah. It's not with the wood. The only thing I'm afraid of, Frank, is that if we do not put a stop on importation of tropical woods, we might not do enough here to uh, encourage uh, an Irish... Forestry okay. culture. But, but then, when do you stop it? Now, today. What do you use? Uh, temperate hardwoods. From where? North America, Canada, European. I mean, you've mentioned yeah, Okay, I know that. Supplies. I'm just asking the question. Yeah. Is, is how? What do you do when you stop it? Firstly, you have. Wood is about tradition. Right. No matter what way you look yeah. at wood, it's about it's about wood, but it's also about tradition. Right. It's what, and it always has been. Right. There's always been a knowledge about wood. We've lost that knowledge because of one reason or another mm. uh, over the last five or six hundred years. Mm. But it's about tradition. So traditionally, you used red deal for your windows, mm. or you used pitch pine, or whatever it was you used. Right. Then that stopped. Right. And now the tradition with a joiner... If you give him a problem in the morning, I need 200 windows and four doors. His problem in the morning, what wood am I going to get? Yeah. Well, you can't have a roco. Well, then what am I going to do? Yeah. How, where am I going to get wood? So, well, you can use red... Where am I going to get it? Yeah. 
How am I going to get it in a way that I can understand to use it? Why does Ireland grow so few hardwoods? Jerry Egan of Quilche, the Irish Forestry Board. Well, the main reason why the level of planting of hardwoods is so low is because the quality of land which is needed for hardwood planting typically has not been available to forestry in Ireland over the past number of years. Our history books tell us that in the Middle Ages, uh, the Great Plains of Ireland were forested with oak and that we had massive oak forests throughout the whole country. But throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, we experienced a phenomenon very similar to what's happening in the tropical rainforest at the moment, whereby those forests were exploited for shipbuilding, for smelting and for coal mining, with the result that by the turn of the century, our forest cover in Ireland was down to about 1% of the total land area. The Irish forest industry itself is mainly based on softwoods and are are otherwise known as conifers. Um, And the the proportion, the total area, for example, under hardwoods would only be be less than 50,000 hectares, as things stand at the moment. So if you had a situation whereby hardwoods were... Um, the importation of hardwoods entirely banned, which of course is a matter for government rather than a matter for Quilcher or for anybody else. Uh, I think you would have a deficit situation whereby you wouldn't have enough native hardwoods at least available in the immediate term. By the end of this decade, timber production from Irish forests will be of the order of about 3 million cubic metres. And at that time, we will be in a position to more than supply our requirements of softwoods. Now, that depends on the industry here becoming more cost competitive and various other issues which need to happen. But certainly in terms of the amount of timber which would be available, it's possible to do that. Now, the hardwood situation is probably a different story. And there are people better qualified than I am who would be able to fill you in on that. But uh, I think for the reasons I've outlined, uh, we're still away, away from being able to meet our hardwood requirements because of the fact that, by and large, the quality of land certainly hasn't been available to the public forestry sector in the past. Frank Fox believes the power of the buyer is central in deciding the demand for trees. It's all customer-led, no matter what way you look at it, and that's the sensible way of looking at it. So if the customer was to come around, the ordinary house builder or house owner or anything that was to turn around and say, OK, I want my windows made from a good wood that will last and you, there's no problem getting the, the um, specifications and, and the uh, durability uh, specification for most of these woods. And I want one, and I prefer larch or uh, Scots pine treated or red deal treated or whatever it might be. Um, then the joiner has to go and find source that. And so then you, you only change your latitudes. You come away from near the equator and you go north into temperate zones. And the building trade is central to preserving the forests. Father Sean McDonough. One of the difficulties with environmental concerns is we can all talk nicely about the environment and it's like motherhood and apple pie. But unless you integrate your insights into anything you're doing, like, for example, building the building trade, you can't talk about the tropical rainforest in one breath and then not have a policy on how to use native hardwoods, for example, in a country like Ireland and not look at 
why we have shown a huge increase in recent years in the importation of tropical hardwoods, mainly from African countries who are destroying their forests at an extraordinary rate. Third world debt is also a central cause of deforestation. One thing that's very important, I think, is people become more aware and aware in an integrated sort of way, that we just don't develop a knowledge of the forest and leave it there. Why are the forests being destroyed? What is the, what's the kind of pressure that has been put on tropical hardwoods, the clear tropical hardwoods now? I'm involved in a number of campaigns at the moment, like, for example, the, the debt campaign, uh, third world debt. One of the major uh, forces that propel countries to continue to destroy, in other words, to market their tropical forests at a very cheap rate, is because they have to pay off their debts. So if the, the West or the North or the rich world decides, yes, we need, this is the heritage of the whole planet and is necessary for the future, then we should look at some of the economic and political policies that actually uh, destroy the forest. And one of them would be the debt thing at the moment. About ten years ago, um, I had uh, a very extraordinary experience. A man, we, had, we were well known in the area for promoting environmental awareness. And uh, a Philippine eagle was forced down by uh, some crows, uh, some uh, hornbill over the, uh, the lake near where I lived. And the, the eagle's talons were immersed in the uh, fisherman's nets. So instead of killing the eagle, the fisherman brought the eagle over to us. Actually, uh, quite a bit of damage to his hand, because the <laughs> eagle's talons will go right through your hands. So we thought that the creature, had, the eagle, had, had hurt his wing, but... So we built a little aviary and put the eagle there while we sent for someone to a, to a, 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 um, a town to get a, someone who knew something about Philippine eagles. Now, I was aware that I am the last generation of human beings that will ever see the Philippine eagle because the crucial element is this eagle needs habitat on which to live and people can work out almost how many hectares of forests are necessary for the, for the sustaining of a pair of eagles. Once you destroy the forests, that, that, that the possibilities for sustainable life for those eagles is, is over. So the point of the Philippines at the moment, you're almost at the point of no return because uh, economically deforestation has fallen in the Philippines uh, in recent years mainly because there's no forest left and it's not economically viable. People have moved on to Indonesia and moved on to New Guinea in the last number of years. So, in other words, they've picked over the Philippines. The tragedy for the destruction of the Philippine forest and any other forest is that once you destroy the forest, it's gone forever. 
the tropical forests play a role in the total fabric of life on the planet, in our weather systems, in the diversity of species and, uh, and genetic diversities, uh, which is essential for the future of the planet, uh, which is in a sense the biocentric argument. They say this is a community of life and every life form has rights to exist. But of course that doesn't wash very well in a commercial world because people, what, what value is it? And you can even point out the circular argument that if we destroy the planet, it's like or the rainforest, it's like excavating with a JCB under a cliff and we're, we're moving further and further out into the cliff because we're destroying the potential for life for ourselves in the future, for our food needs and also for our medicinal needs. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.